today's Bible reading uh, is from 2 Samuel chapter 5, um, which can be found on page 308 of the Church Bibles. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say, the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inwards and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And then we're going to move to the start of chapter 6. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the, Lord, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, son of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irre irreverent acts. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. 
So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David um, with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephrod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Thank you, Catherine. Good evening. Uh, my name's Andrew. I'm part of the church family at Above Bar. It's an honor for me to be here. We're doing a series on Sunday evenings in the life of uh, David, uh, which is why we've just read 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. Uh, the title of this sermon, rather mysteriously, I think, uh, is King David and the Ark. Uh, it's mysterious because although David appears in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, the Ark doesn't appear in chapter 5 at all. Um, but that's not going to worry me at all, and you don't look worried or even interested in what I've just said. It's great that we're here. Please, could you have the passage open in front of you? So if you haven't found it yet, could you turn to page 308 in the church Bibles or on your gadget, find it? We, we really do need that in front of us, because we're doing the whole of chapter 5 and the whole of chapter 6 um, this evening. So we may be some time. We won't. Um, one of the exciting things about coming to God and um, worshipping God is that when we open his word together, we're asking him to speak into our lives. And God loves to use the Bible to speak into our lives. So let's open ourselves up now and pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word in our hands. Please take our lives into your hands and speak into them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to learn so much this evening as we look at chapters 5 and 6 of 2 Samuel. In chapter 5, we're going to see that the focus is on the generosity of God. The generosity of God. We're going to see what God has given David. It's, it's a wonderful chapter. So we're going to get straight into that, and it's, it's important not simply because it's interesting to find out how God was generous to David, it's important also because God has been generous to us. God has given us things, and we should respond to that. It should fill our hearts with praise. So let's be open to the Holy Spirit and look at chapter 5, and we'll see that it's about God's generosity. Just have a look and see what God gives to David. First of all, in verses 1 to 5, he gives him the throne. Verse, uh, verse 1, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and you shall become their ruler. Now look what happens in verse 3. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. 
and they anointed David king over Israel. It's happened. David has been anointed as king, and he knows that's not because he's wonderful, because he's amazing. He knows that it's a gift from God. Look, look and see again what the people had said to David at the end of verse 2. The Lord said to you, you, you shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall become their ruler. This is a gift from God. God is giving David the throne. God is letting David, making David the king over Israel. Verse 4, David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for 40 years. So there we are. First thing God gives to David, he gives him the throne. Secondly, in verses 6 to 12, God gives David Jerusalem. Now this is really important because Jerusalem is the capital. Verse 6, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in there. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. That is not politically correct. They're basically saying, you're so weak, there's no way you're going to be able to conquer Jerusalem. Anyone will be able to ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, verse 7, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. So there is David. David is in Jerusalem. God has given him not only the throne, he's given him Jerusalem. He's given him the capital as well. And look at verse 10. This is really important. This is something David knows. David became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. That's the reason he's powerful. Not because he's got brilliant military strategy, not because he's got huge armies, it's because God is with him. God is generous to David. So God gives David the throne, God gives David Jerusalem. Thirdly, God gives David victories. This is the part of the chapter that Catherine didn't read to us. Verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been appointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. I don't know how this happened. I imagine David just prayed. And I imagine he had the sense that God was saying to him, Yes, go ahead. I'm going to deliver the Philistines to you. Verse 20, David went to Baal-perazim and there he defeated them. He said, as the waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. That's a victory over the Philistines. God has given him that. And there's another victory from verse 22 onwards. Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle round behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Giza. Once again, God has answered David's prayer. God has told David how to go about beating the Philistines. So you see that what God has given David in this chapter, he's given him the throne. 
He's given him Jerusalem and he's given him victories. And if you're thinking at all, you can think of things that God has given you. God has been generous to you. Oh, you you may have had very tough things happen in your life. That may be true too, of course. That is part of life in in a messed up world. But you can see that God has given you things, can't you? I hope that you can think of things that God has given you. There are many of us here thinking, yes, God has given me Jesus. He's given me Jesus as my saviour. Jesus came, he died on the cross for my sins so I could be forgiven, so I could be God's friend now and forever. That's a fantastic gift. That is God's generosity to you. If you're thinking, yes, that's true of me, God has given me Jesus, feel free. Lift your heart to God now and praise him for his generosity. Let's fill this place with worship. Let's not stop worshipping now that we've stopped singing. And you can think of other things, particular friends that were important to you or family that were important to you, particular things God has given you in your life and you're saying, yes, God has done that. God is generous to me. I'm grateful to him and you want to thank him, don't you? And I think David was thankful to God too, but there's something in this chapter which shows that he's... His commitment to God is not completely wholehearted. His commitment to God is not 100%. Look at verse 13. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. Oh dear. David knows that that's not right. David knows God's law. David knows Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17. Just in case you don't, I'll just remind you of it. Don't worry, I didn't know either. Deuteronomy 17, verse 17 says, the king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. David will have known that. And yet here he is with all this blessing coming from God, all this generosity coming from God, and here he is taking more wives and more concubines. It looks like David is, I assume David is very grateful to God for for God's generosity, but there is one area of his life where he's not fully going God's way. I want these extra wives, I want these concubines. I want more women I can sleep with. And that's true of us sometimes too, isn't it? That we're grateful to God and we thank him and we want to serve him, we want to live for him, but maybe there's a corner of our lives which we keep for ourselves. It may not be wives and concubines. Maybe something else, something you're thinking of at the moment, something you're aware of, an area of your life that you haven't given completely to God. Well, I'm not saying that so that we can beat ourselves up about it. Because we all need forgiveness. None of us is perfect. We all sin. And the great good news is that we have Jesus. And Jesus came and the life he lived, it's extraordinary. The life he lived, Jesus didn't keep a corner of his life for himself, apart from God his Father. The whole of his life was lived for God his Father. 
For me, one of the most astonishing things that Jesus ever said is this. He's talking about his relationship with God, his Father, and he says this, I always do what pleases him. I always do what pleases him. He's telling the truth when he says that. I can say I sometimes do what pleases God and I want to do what pleases God, but there are times when I absolutely don't do what pleases God and the same is true of you. But here's Jesus living a perfect life. I always do what pleases him and Jesus therefore, because he lived a perfect life, could go to the cross and take our sin on his shoulders and take our punishment so that we could be forgiven. Maybe you want to lift your heart now and say to God, please forgive me for this or for this or for this. He loves to forgive. That's why Jesus came. So chapter five is about God's generosity. Let's go on into chapter six. Chapter six is about God's presence. And the reason I know it's about God's presence is because the ark gets mentioned here. So look at verse two, please. David and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty. Now, what's the ark? This has nothing to do with Noah, so forget Noah. The ark is a box, and it's a box, sort of oblong box, and in this box, I don't know much about the ark, but I'll tell you what I know. This won't take long. In the ark there is a bowl of manna, which was the miraculous bread that God gave his people when they were in the desert. In the box, there's also the Ten Commandments that God gave his people. In the box, there's also Aaron's rod. The most important thing about the box, though, is it represents God's presence with his people. That's why I've said chapter six is about God's presence. It's about God being with his people. And if you look at the end of verse two, it says here, the Lord Almighty is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. It was like they believed that God was especially there, enthroned there on the ark. The ark was an incredibly important thing. And because of that, the people weren't allowed to touch the ark even because the ark was holy because God was holy. So when they carried the ark, the way they were supposed to carry it, there were poles at the bottom of the ark, long ways there, and they stuck out the end of the ark so that four people could, could put a pole on their shoulders, one there, one there, and two at the far end as well, and they could carry the ark without touching the ark because you couldn't touch the ark because the ark is holy, because God is holy. So that's what the ark is, and this is about the presence of God. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, this is all very interesting, Andrew, or not particularly, but what's this got to do with us? We haven't got an ark. Uh, we haven't got an ark. There is no ark up here. There is no ark. We don't want an ark, but we do have the presence of God. If you're a truster in Jesus, if you've turned from your sins and put your trust in Jesus, you are forgiven, you have eternal life, and the Holy Spirit lives in you. 
The presence of God is in you at this moment. That is extraordinary. That wasn't true of you before you became a Christian. It wasn't true of you before you decided to put your trust in Jesus. But now the Holy Spirit is living inside you. The presence of God is there. Feel free to lift your heart to God and to worship him. The presence of God. So we've had the story read to us about the ark. They didn't carry it on the poles. They put it on a new cart. Verse 3, I don't think they should have done that. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab uh, with, with the, ark, the new cart with the, with the ark of God on it. David and all Israel, verse 5, were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles, and cymbals. Now this, we come to the heavy bit. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Wow. It's one of the bits of the Bible I would really rather not read. But if I think that, it's because I'm underestimating how holy God is. Verse 8, then David was angry because, of the Lord, because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. So David actually says, I don't want the ark near me. I don't want any contact with the ark. I don't want the ark in Jerusalem. And somehow the, uh, the ark gets taken to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, verse 10, who looks after it. Maybe he has a spare room. But that's the story of the ark here. But this story is going to help us to see how we should respond to God's presence. God's presence was there with the ark, wasn't it? God was enthroned on the ark. This was a really holy situation, the holy God there with his people. And we're going to see two ways in which David responds to the ark, responds to the presence of God, and they're going to help us to see how we should respond to the presence of God amongst us and in us. The first we've already seen, really, it's fear. Fear. I mean, David is basically just afraid. It freaks him out. There it is in verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? By fear, I'm not talking about being afraid of God. By fear, I mean what the Bible often means when it talks about fear. I mean being full of awe because of God's holiness. Being aware when I think of God and his presence here that I am a sinner. That I'm not the person I ought to be. I should feel fear. The New Testament talks about this as well. Uh, Paul, when he's writing the letter to the church in Ephesus, he's talking about the fact that through Jesus... God has given us forgiveness and eternal life and the gift of the Spirit. And he's saying to the Christians in Ephesus, make sure that you live the way God wants you to live. And then he says this, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is living inside you. 
And if I give myself to sin, if I deliberately give myself to sin, then I am grieving the Holy Spirit. Fearing God is not about being afraid of him. Fearing God is being afraid of hurting him. But we should have fear when we come into God's presence. I don't want to fear him. That's the first response to God's presence. The second response, it's in the second half of the chapter. It's in verses 12 to 23, and it's joy. Uh, In verse 12, I'm not going to read it. David hears that Obed-Edom is getting really blessed by the fact that the ark is in his house. So David changes his mind and says, I want the ark in Jerusalem. So he goes and he arranges that the ark will be brought to Jerusalem and he's there heading up the procession. Uh, The end of verse 12, David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. There's joy here. And verse 14, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. That's joy. Not everyone is enthusiastic about this. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. But it's there. If you look at David in verse 12 and in verse 14, he experiences joy in the presence of God. And we should too. Fear, yes, because God is holy, but joy also. Now, it doesn't have to be dancing. This is not teaching us, this passage, that we all need to be dancing. So I don't know what David's dancing looked like. Maybe it was something like this. Michal was not impressed, just as I can sense that you're not very impressed by what I'm doing at the moment. That doesn't matter what you're, what you're actually doing outwardly like that. The question is, what are, you are, you, are you experiencing joy in God if you're a truster in Jesus? David, David was experiencing joy. So, so, so much joy that he was flipping out. He was dancing, leaping, jumping. There's a verse in the New Testament which I think is really important about the subject of joy. Please listen to this. I think this is stunning stuff. Even though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Even though you do not see him, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. This is Peter talking to Christians. And he doesn't say, some of you, a few of you, are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. He says, you, Christians, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And sometimes I read that verse and I think, oh dear. It, doesn't say, it says inexpressible joy, meaning you can't put it into words. 
And it's glorious, meaning it's fantastic. And it's not just a little joy, you are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. How does that sound? I think it sounds wonderful. Don't you want to experience that? Filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, whether that means that I end up dancing or not doesn't bother me, although, to be honest, I'd rather not dance, having seen the reaction to, from you when I tried to dance. But I want to experience inexpressible and glorious joy because I'm a truster in Jesus. Now, it may be that you don't experience that. Let me ask you a question then. When did you last ask God to let you experience that? Have you ever asked God to give you joy? To ask God to give you joy. Now, because of your personality being different from other people's personality, you will experience joy in a different way. But let me tell you, joy is a feeling. Joy is an experience. I'm not talking about British joy. This is how a British Christian talks about joy. I have a very, very, very deep joy. My joy is so deep that no one could ever guess that I have it. And it's so, so deep that not even I can experience it. Tosh. Joy is something we're supposed to feel. We're supposed to experience it. And you can experience according to your personality. God can give you that joy. Do you want that joy? Well, then why don't you ask him for it? Why don't you ask a friend to pray for you in the coming week that you will experience inexpressible and glorious joy, that you'll be filled with it? Wouldn't that be a great thing? If you can't think of anyone you could ask to pray that for you, come and ask me and I'll write down your name or remember your name, and I'll pray it for you in the coming week. This is the way we should respond to the presence of God, respond to the fact that God is living in us by his spirit if we're trusters in Jesus. Fear? I don't want to hurt God. I don't want to grieve the spirit. And joy. Inexpressible and glorious joy. I'm so glad I've read 2 Samuel 6 and 2 Samuel 5. I'm, it's, I've been reminded this evening, and as I've been preparing this as well, of, of God's generosity as I've looked at chapter 5. And as I've looked at chapter 6, I've been reminded of how I can respond, should respond, to God's presence. His spirit is inside me because I'm a truster in Jesus, so I want to respond with fear and with joy. Is God speaking to you? Is there a hunger in you to know God better, to experience his presence, to experience fear and joy in his presence? Just take a few seconds now, just a few seconds of silence. Just ask yourself the question, what has God specially said to me this evening through these two chapters? It may be about God's generosity, Or it may be about responding to God's presence in fear and in joy. Or it may be about asking God to let you experience his joy. 
Let's just have a brief silence while each of us just thinks, what has God said to me this evening through this passage? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your generosity to us in giving us Jesus. You were generous to David, and you've been so generous to us. Thank you that you sent Jesus to be the saviour of the world. Thank you that he died so that we could be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead. Thank you that so many of us here, we know that we're forgiven, that we have eternal life, that your spirit lives inside us. Father, we worship you. We thank you. And we thank you for your presence in us by your spirit, if we are trusting Jesus, your son. Father, please teach us to fear you so that we don't want to hurt you by giving ourselves to sin. And please fill us with an inexpressible and glorious joy so that we may feel this joy as we rejoice in you. And Father, if there is somebody that we want to ask that they would pray for us in the coming week and we pray for them, please help us to have that conversation after the service. And Father, as we sing these songs at the end of our service, I want to pray for me and for all of us that you would fill us with this inexpressible and glorious joy. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.